0: This podcast
1: is brought to you by Tethered. Now with deer seasons winding down, it is a great time to take the plunge into saddle hunting, especially if you've been considering it. Maybe you've just wanted to try out the gear before you made a purchase. So with that, our friends at Tethered are always coming up with ways to help saddle hunters. And this year they're doing the Tethered Teach and Train Tour, and it's hitting 20 different cities. And the session is 100% free to attend, where you'll be able to try out all their gear. So here's what's happening or what is also included in the event. There's a free lunch or dinner, depending on the time of the event, all their saddle hunting gear will be in one place, so you can test absolutely everything that they have. And then there's going to be lots of giveaways and freebies. There's event-only pricing and discounts on tethered gear. And then there's insider access on some gear, so you'll get a sneak peek as to some of the things that are yet to be uh, to be released. And then there will also, of course, be saddle hunting experts there available to answer any of your questions while you're hanging and trying out the different gear. So head over to tetherednation.com and check out the Teach and Train Tour page to see the list of cities and dates. Uh, I'm planning to be at the event on May 28th through the 31st at the Seven Springs tax shoot. So I hope to see you all there. The first thing I do in the morning before a hunt, before a scout, or just before getting ready for work is have my morning coffee, and I'm sure most of you out there listening are the same. Make sure you're filling your mug with Skull Brew Coffee as it is the only coffee company that is both 2% for conservation certified and donates 10% of its profits to conservation organizations to help secure the future of our wild places. So head to SkullBrewCoffee.com and choose between three killer roasts of coffee and know that you are supporting conservation with every sip welcome to the truth from the stand deer hunting podcast brought to you by skull brew coffee company i'm your host clint campbell and you're listening to episode number 162 today i'm joined by jared scheffler of white adrenaline and we'll be talking aggressive ground and pound public land strategies so stay tuned <music> All right, all right, all right. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you're doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. It is a sad day here in the uh, in the truth at the Truth from the Stand Hookah Lounge Studio. I think it's what I refer to it as, the Hookah Lounge Studio. Uh, whitetail season has ended for me, and it had ended. It ended uh, unceremoniously. In fact, um, the bummer of it was was that we had some really gnarly. Rain come through, which was just kind of a complete washout for the day. um It stopped raining at one point during the day. and Look, I'm not, I'm not opposed to sitting out in the rain. I sat out in like the the weathery wintry mix the the weekend before, but I just did not see any use sitting out in a monsoon uh, for for the day. It did let up at one point around three o'clock, or well, I guess it was probably about two one thirty, two o'clock actually. I went and checked and I thought maybe I could run out and maybe sneak in and slip a hunt in thinking that animals would get up and move while they had a little break in the weather. But, you know, as I was thinking about getting ready to go, the rain picked back up and it started pouring again. And that was kind of it. So my hunting season is over. Uh, Pennsylvania, uh, tag goes unfilled. Uh, but look, my, my season was pretty good this year. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna complain. So, you know, as I do, you know, I, I quickly turn the page and start thinking about what's going to be going on for next year, already making plans to, to check out some stuff and, and, uh, make a trip to the one piece in Ohio, um, do some, do some scouting. We'll probably hit it, uh, here toward the end of February is what I think what the plan is. And then, um, I, I may end up going in Turkey hunting it possibly um, we'll, we'll see if that comes to fruition. I always kind of make this grand plan of going and Turkey hunting in Ohio and doing a little hunt slash scout type deal. Uh, but every year it seems that, uh, that, I, that I fail to, that I fail to make it, things get busy. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things, man, where, you know, you, you put so much effort into the hunting season and then whenever the, you know, it's, it's really tough. I think, at least for me look it's it's kind of tough for me to get out after the holidays kind of pass because you know my my wife and my family are really um uh understanding the rest of the year like mid-september through you know basically january 1st um and let me kind of do whatever i want to do and it's not that anyone ever tells me that i can't go hunt but i there's there's part of me that as the uh responsible adult husband and dad uh feels like after christmas like i really ought to back burner um the the trips away and um you know prioritizing hunting every every you know free opportunity that i have and so you know a lot of times i'll like today could i've gone out you know possibly the weather was crappy um really wasn't looking forward to it last weekend could have i gone out earlier in the morning um and did an all day kind of hunt yeah i could have but then i wouldn't have been able to spend any time you know over the course of the weekend with uh with the wife and the kid um just you know truth be told saturday you know if if i'm out hunting and sunday we have coffee stuff going on and stuff like that and then that's really the day you know that i'm able to kind of get anything done as far as the podcast is concerned and and anything related to youtube since that's something i'm trying to do more of this year um and so sunday really becomes kind of a a, a work day and so that really doesn't leave a whole lot of time for for family stuff. So I try to, I try to, you know, after the first of the year, I try to reduce my, my, my time in the, uh, my time in the timber, but you know, we'll be getting out doing a little scout and shed hunting just around the corner. So that's uh, that's good and exciting. Um, but for me, man, you know, I, 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 looking back on the season, like John and I'll do a look back here in the not so distant future and kind of analyze our, our hunts and stuff like that. But you know, there, there are a few things I feel like I could have done a little differently. Um, you know, I, I feel like in PA, I think, I feel like I, I feel like I pressed the envelope a little too hard probably in, in September and early October in, in one particular area. Like there's sometimes I feel like I pressed it too hard and then there's sometimes I feel like, I feel like I didn't press it hard enough. Like, I feel like I had a spot that I, that I was into and I was having, you know, sightings of this deer and, um, you know, I broke my own rule kind of, I kind of got married to the spot. Um, and, uh, which is something that I've tried to break the habit of. And it was something I broke the habit of when I went to, when I went to Iowa. So maybe that's a, that's a good omen, but, uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the upfront for this one today. Cause I got a super cool show, uh, lined up for you. The one that I've been pretty pumped about to do for, for, you know, a, a few months actually. But before I do that, I want to do a quick piece of housekeeping just want to make mention that the uh, Pennsylvania chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers will be at the Great American Outdoor Show in Harrisburg from February 1st through the 9th. Be sure to visit their booth and learn what they're all about. They'll have membership uh, specials and prizes throughout the week, so if you've not signed up for your new BHA membership or if you've not renewed, there will be a great time to do so. Also, uh, they're having a Backcountry Bash at the Appalachian Brewing Company uh, in Harrisburg on Friday, February 7th. That starts at 6 p.m., uh, so be sure to check that out. Those are always a good time. And then also be sure to follow them on Instagram and Facebook to learn more about them and, and how they're helping to fight the good fight on our behalf here in uh, Pennsylvania. So with that, I have Jared Scheffler uh, from Whitetail Adrenaline on the show today. So <clears throat> if you remember you know, back to the, the Iowa trip and so forth, there was some a, a couple ground opportunities that I had and one that I hunted and I rattled a buck in. Uh, Which was cool. And so for me, you know, and I'll dive into this a little bit more. Like I said, when John and I go back, you know, do our kind of wrap up for the year. But ground hunting is something that I'm really wanting to add to my repertoire. Um, I have a couple setups that I've avoided in the past just because there was nowhere to get into a tree um, at all, you know, period, full stop. So with that, you know, I I feel like, you know, those are probably areas where there's probably decent deer hanging out. Why? Because if I'm not able to hunt it, there's probably a lot of other people that aren't able to hunt it. So there's probably that's probably a little bit of a place where deer can go and and not get bothered. And so I was introduced to the whitetail adrenaline. Like I've known of them for a while. You know, I see them actually make mention. They'll be at the Harrisburg show as well. So if you're heading to Harrisburg, be sure to stop by the whitetail adrenaline uh, adrenaline booth. And John is actually, you know, buddies with uh, a chancy. And uh, I I was, when I was out in Iowa last year in March to do a little bit of scouting, he just had one of their videos on. And I had never actually, I'd seen like clips and stuff like that, but I'd never sat down and watched. And so we got back from shed hunting one day or one evening and it just happened to be on TV. And I sat down and I watched maybe, you know, 30 minutes of it or whatever, 40 minutes of it before, you know, whatever we were, he and I were going out to do something. And, it was awesome. So if you've not watched their DVDs, like I recommend you pick pick one up because they're killer, and it and it's just kind of it. It took me a minute until this year until I had a couple setups where I thought maybe the ground would work better um, than you know being elevated to really kind of pique my interest. So when I got back from from my trip, I ended up getting a white tail adrenaline DVD and watching it. And those dudes are just savages. And if you want to see some like action packed ground hunting. going to want to check you're going to want to check those guys out and so this for me like you'll probably see a theme a little bit this year um where i'm really going to kind of try to focus and have some guys on you know and or girls if i can find one um that are diehard ground hunters that get it done um and jared was the first one i wanted to start with just because i'd watched their dvd um and and they're and they're like you won't find a more insane approach to hunting from the ground than than these guys, um, which is kind of why I wanted to have him on first because you know plenty of folks will hunt from the ground and maybe take more of a a measured approach and these guys definitely are measured they're not just throwing caution to the wind like they're playing the wind they're doing like all the things you need to do but like their aggressiveness is second to none um, and so that was kind of why I wanted to start with uh, with Jared and it's a cool show that you know that that we have coming up and then next week we'll, I'll have uh Zach Farrenbaugh on from the hunting public and he and I'll probably do a two part session on hunting from hunting from the ground. We cover a lot of stuff in that, in, in that podcast, you know, but we focus in on hunting from the ground. So as I'd mentioned, you'll start to see a little bit of a theme for this year where we're, where I'm kind of focusing on having some folks on talking about ground hunting. Cause it's something selfishly that I really want to add to my game. And I think a lot of you out there listening, it's one of those things that we all probably stay away from because it, you know, it adds an, an additional element of difficulty to it, especially with a bow. Um, and so maybe we just avoid it because of how challenging it could be. But I really think if you add it to your to your bag of tricks um, as an option, not as the only way to hunt, um, but as an option, um, probably up up the opportunities and up the encounters. And that's at least the conversations I've had this far with thus far with you know like Jared and Zach. Like that's exactly what they found whenever they switched to ground hunting was like their encounters went through the roof. Um, so I'm really intrigued to add it to my bag of tricks this year and wanted to, wanted to start that conversation. So with that, we'll get on the line here with Jared. But as always, thank you guys for listening. Just kidding. I have one last thing. If you're headed to the Harrisburg show uh, February 1st through the 9th, I believe, be sure to stop by the Exodus booth and see my boys from Exodus I will also be there the first weekend of the show and most likely the last weekend as well. And now for real, let's get Jared on the line. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of The Truth From The Stand, Deer Hunting Podcast. And today's episode is one that I've been looking forward to doing for a while. It's these are some uh, th- This gentleman that I have on the other line is a guy that I've watched some of his material a little bit from afar at first. I got turned on to these guys uh, by Johnny Utah Mulligan and watched some DVDs while I was out at his house. And, uh, I did a little ground hunting while I was in Iowa on this most recent trip, this rut trip this past year, which kind of sparked my interest. And so then I picked up a DVD of theirs this year and digested it and ground hunting, is something I want to add to my arsenal. So I was like, you know what? I should probably just find like the craziest dudes I could possibly find for ground hunting and see if I can't pick their brain and learn a bit, learn a little bit of something. And I'm talking about the whitetail adrenalines, no other than Jared Scheffler. What's going on, man?
2: Well, I don't know if I'm the craziest. but... <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I don't know. But thank man. you, I
2: appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, obviously. Well, you, maybe you haven't watched all the videos, but you've definitely, if you, if you have or or would, you definitely see all the things that uh, has gone wrong and all that craziness over the years too. Yeah, yeah,
1: I've seen I've seen a few things go go awry, man. Which is, uh, you know, for me, man, that just builds character, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess I. I I guess it's all about the story is what we always, uh, every time something goes wrong, uh, well, I shouldn't say every time, but a lot of times recently, uh, the last couple of years, I'll look, if I'm with like Matty Z, Matt Zinni, who's filming, I'll look at him and I'll just go, it's all about the story. That's
1: right, man. That's right. You know,
2: obviously it didn't go quite the way we wanted it to or, or whatnot, but you know, that's hunting and,
1: Right. Sometimes I always kinda, that happens. I always kind of prefer, you know, whenever there's a little bit of, you know, failure or tough times or whatever, like as part of the hunt, because to me, that's like really where like the meat of the story is. If you just walked in and killed a deer, I mean, there's not much of a story there. Am I right?
2: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, trust me when I get my butt kicked for a week or two weeks or however long it is and I sh- go to a new state and things just go way too smooth and, and and everything i just earned it for the last week week and a half or two weeks or however long that is mm-hmm. uh so so i guess in that sense i'm all right with it but if every hunt was like that then yeah it wouldn't be much of a hunt it wouldn't be the reason why we you know i it just wouldn't be I, I probably wouldn't enjoy it as much as i do but obviously i'm kind of hooked on hunting whitetails and on the ground. And right. I think a big part of that is just because it is very difficult.
1: Yep. Yep. hundred uh, percent. So let me, let sorry. me ask you, man, you know, uh, just for those out there listening that may not be as familiar with you and, and, and whitetail ad- adrenaline in general, could you just give me a little bit of background about yourself, you know, where you're from and how you got started hunting?
2: Yeah. Uh, I grew up in West central Wisconsin, Menominee, Wisconsin uh to be more specific um grew up on a small dairy farm my dad uh we worked really hard long hours on the farm and hunting was kind of like the the thing i grew up around uh that uh was okay i guess if you would like you, you could take a little time and go hunting but you know there was a lot of work to be done on the farm and so hunting was really just kind of a release but i i, I just really I remember at a young age, before I was old enough to hunt in Wisconsin, you had to be 12 at the time. Uh, I remember back in those days, um, we'd have a small group of maybe 10, 12 guys that they got together every gun season to to do some small pushes and whatnot. And I just remember staying up and and getting up early and listening to the deer stories from the old timers. And it was was just really addicting, and and I guess for as long as I – can remember, I mean, hunting's been what I, uh, really enjoy the most, I guess, as far as a hobby, if, if you would, which obviously a hobby kind of turned into sort of a living, I guess, um, which
1: it is a fine
2: line to balance, but, uh, overall I still enjoy it, obviously.
1: Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as much work as you guys put into what you do, it's like, if you didn't enjoy it, then it would be kind of insanity, you know, for, for as much work as you guys do. Yeah. The, uh, so yeah, Yeah. uh, yeah. So you grew up on on the farm, you know, when did, you know, I guess starting to like dabble or hunting public land really kind of start to be, you know, a thing that you were really kind of pursuing more so than just, you know, hunting the, hunting the family farm? You
2: you know, we didn't have much acreage on the family farm. I mean, there was really only about, I'm going to say maybe 10 acres of like grass Mm -hmm. at the back of a couple of crop fields. It was a small dairy farm, but most of the ground was land that was already taken off so occasionally there'd be a little bit of standing corn so most of the hunting I grew up with was either hunting a big public land swamp that was just a few miles away there was a couple other smaller parcels of public or else in, in the time and place where I grew up hunting wasn't as much like it is today what I mean by that is I could knock on a lot of different farmers' doors. Most of them would let me hunt, and they let other people hunt too. Right. So um, even a lot of those farms were, you know, they weren't leased or, or whatnot. There's other hunters that could hunt there. It, it was no different really than hunting the public land at that time in that era just because, the, the you know, it wasn't a managed situation,
3: I guess, if you would.
1: Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I guess out there, the people think about, you know, those who have access to farms, they think of like, you know, having blocks of timber and stuff like that. But the reality is, is a lot of times these farms are, you know, in agriculture as much as possible, because that's how folks are making money, or in your case, how you're likely feeding cows to, to milk, you know, to where it's What's like, that? I said, you know, a lot of times these farms, it's like, you know, yep. p- people think that they're, you know, just big blocks of timber that are in, in within these farms. But you know, most of the time, you're trying to turn as much as you can into, you know, tillable acreage for either a cash crop, you know, or to feed to the, you know, to the to the stock that you have on the farm to to make your living, to make your money. So hunting's not the priority. It's kind of like the nice byproduct of the farm if you uh, if you have it, right?
2: Yeah, yeah exactly. All of those farms, they were just farmers that were, yeah, it was. It wasn't. Uh, they weren't doing anything for for deer per se. I, I mean, they were just, you know, doing their normal crops for, for their cattle or, or whatnot. Um, and it was broken up type acreage, you know, you'd have some swamp mixed with smaller timber, you know, or maybe it's a hundred acre woods and there's, you know, crop fields around it or whatever, but nothing was, you know, there wasn't food plots and any tor- sort of activity done, uh, you know, by anyone or the farmer to, to, you know, cater it to deer.
1: Right. You know, right. So, so whenever you started hunting, I mean, was bow hunting something that was in your, was in your family? Did you start bow hunting? Did, or did you start gun hunting, you know, like a lot of folks do, and then transition to transition to bow hunting? And was it always from the ground, or did you start, you know, in, a, in an elevated platform like a tree stand or something like that?
2: Yeah, no, um, I grew, so my, the first year I could hunt was when I was 12. So I remember uh, I started bow hunting as soon as I could. My dad did bow hunting as well. I started with a hand-me-down Black Bear, is what the bow was called, and it was uh, had these tiny little plastic wheels on it. I remember my brother bought it from a retail store called Fleet Farm back in the day for (laughs) probably sixty or eighty bucks. It wasn't uh, much of a bow, but but (laughs) it uh, you know it got me kind of rolling or whatnot. And then uh, it was shotgun for a weapon only in no rifles in that area so um then I you know that first season I partook with a with a shotgun I got a Remington 870 Wingmaster at a gun show used mm-hmm. I still have that gun I love that gun but nice. um so so from that first year forward I've always bow hunted and I've always gun hunted um I grew up in a like when my dad would take me out hunting uh there wasn't tree stands, but I was pretty squirrely, I guess you could say. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I remember a lot, of, a lot of different times, you know, we'd walk into a, you know, a woodlot or a whatever. It might be a little funnel point where a swamp meets, you know, or, or some timber meets a swamp or whatever. And my dad would point to something that he thought maybe I could get up. Well, can, can you get up there? you know, in that crotch of that tree or hang out on that limb up there.
3: Right.
2: And I'm not kidding you. Uh, the first couple of seasons, I don't think I even had a tree peg. My dad was a good climber too. <laughs> and so, um, he just, you know, I mean, I, I mean, sometimes there wouldn't be branches for 10, 10 feet. And you just kind of like bare hug the tree and could climb up there. And that's really how I started hunting, you know, occasionally on the ground, just a little bit here and there, but usually, uh, you know, the way I was taught was to, to try to get to something elevated. It wasn't a must by any, any, uh, standard or anything like that. Uh, but, um, yeah, I, uh, didn't get one for a couple of years. Um, but, uh, the first buck I shot was exactly like that. I was in a crotch of a small tree and the crotch was so tight in the tree that I had had, I I only had room for one foot. I had to set my other foot on top of the other foot, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, Yeah, it. Uh, that's that's kind of how I grew up. And when I was 16, that's the first time that I kind of really remember starting to pursue whitetails more heavily on the ground. Right. I had a handful of situations that season when I was 16. And uh, I continued to use tree stands uh, for about seven years after that, I guess, mm-hmm. somewhere in that ballpark. Um, you know, I had a couple of 10-pound uh their summit made them back in that day and you'd hang the strap and you'd hook the tree stand on they were very light very quiet very easy to put up and so I played that in and out game Mm -hmm. and then uh, eventually in 2010 so we just got done with 10 straight seasons of just hunting solely on the ground like a spot and stock or still hunt fashion but up until 2010 I still played that tree stand game um, and then abandoned it abandoned it going into 2010
1: nice yeah and it just seems like you know being from the ground just kinda like com- completely frees you up like i had so for me it's like i i started hunting on the ground and that was the only way my dad really ever hunted so i never was in an elevated you know in an elevated position until i was probably in my 30s you know because we just always <clears throat> still hunted and hunted from the ground um and then this year you know i was in a spot in iowa you know this crp field with like a draw on it where i you know i ended up kicking a really big deer out of it uh, on this piece of public. And so I went in the next day to hunt him from the ground and it was just, I don't know. There was something about being at eye level. I ended up rattling a buck in, you know, it wasn't a shooter, um, but it was just still cool to be, to rattle one in, come in that close and be on the ground with them. It was just, it was just a different experience, man. And it was one of those things where I was like, you know, there's a lot of setups I've walked away from over the course of time because I didn't have a tree to to get into, you know, and I was like, you know, hunting from the ground, I was like, would open up some of those opportunities. I was like, and especially, I was just curious to get your take on this too. Like, I almost feel like because so many people avoid hunting from the ground, I imagine there's setups that if it's exclusively on the ground, there's likely going to be deer there that are comfortable because they also know that people aren't going to go into those places because there's no, there's no, you know, tree or if you will, from someone, for someone to hunt them from. Do you find that to be the the case where you get into the, some of these places that might have pressure where, those grounds exclusive kind of areas that are ground set up almost only that tend to kind of you know hold the best deer.
2: Um, you know, occasionally I felt like maybe that's the case. I don't know if they necessarily consciously like, oh, there's no trees here. But I do definitely think that they sense pressure levels, you know, and mm-hmm. find those pockets, you know, and and if that pocket just happens to not have trees, it happens to not have trees, and and so I, I would say that what you said is, is very accurate. I'm just not sure whether they actually, you know, process it, you know, by, you know, by, by like looking at it, like is there trees where they could set up or anything like that? Maybe that's not what you meant, but um, I would say that, you know, I mean, mature whitetails, I mean, they don't generally like people Mm -hmm. and, and Chancey, I, you know, I say that the first time I heard it, Chancey told me that he's like, big bucks don't like people, (laughs) you know? And, and, you know, it was kind of funny. He said it in a funny way or whatever. It sounds so silly, but yet it's, like, most in most situations, unless you're hunting, like, city-type deer, they don't like people. And so they're going to be in locations that – or generally be in pockets and locations where they aren't getting bothered as much. Unless the whole area has a lot of pressure, then, I mean, they just – I think they just adapt to it and and are a little bit – you know, that they're just very aware creatures in those situations, you know, sure. and uh, they they'll still probably be hanging out in the least pressured parts of those you know pockets or areas where there's pressure all over the place. I guess if that makes sense,
1: yeah, yeah, no, it totally does. I mean, it, it's one of those things where it's like, find where the people aren't, and then that's where you might want to be. And in my mind, it's like if there's less hunt if there's less hunting opportunities, like so let's say, for example, if 95% of people who hunt whitetails with a bow in my area, just say in my area, hunt from trees and there's no trees in an area, I'd maybe want to look at that area that doesn't have a lot of huntable trees because there would probably be less pressure and less people Correct. equals, you know, likely that, you know, mature deer would maybe prefer prefer that area. I kind of look at swamps almost the same way because a lot of people, I always I hold an, heard an old timer one time tell me, you know, big big bucks like wet feet. You know, kind of alluding to the fact that like the nastier and the crappier the terrain is, you know, the wetter it is and the more limited bedding opportunities that, that they might have, less likely people are to be there. Less likely the deer you're looking for is probably there or more likely the deer you're looking for is probably there. So, right. Right. Yeah. So I'd at, agree with that. So at what point did, uh, you know, not, not that, you know, hunting from the ground isn't hard enough, but at what point did you start to add filming into, uh, into what you were doing in, almost on every hunt? That uh,
2: the first season is was filmed in 2007. So we've filmed every season since then. Um, so like I said, I, I completely abandoned the tree stands in 2010. So the first three seasons of our videos have some on the ground and some tree stand. Mm -hmm. Um, which is kind of, you know, I've never went back and watched them after I'm done editing them someday. (laughs) I probably will. Right. But it's probably, uh, uh, it's probably kind of neat to watch the transition or the progression of, you know, obviously we got more and more aggressive over the years in different ways. And, and with that sometimes comes a lot of failure and missed opportunities or mistakes as well. But that's part of the part of the deal.
1: Speaking of missed opportunities and failures, I'm always curious. You know, what is in in your mind? And it might not be the biggest buck that you've ever missed, or whatever the case might be. But what, in your mind, do you think is like the the biggest you know blown opportunity that you that you've had? And maybe you learned something super valuable from it that helped you be successful, like as you as you've gone through the years. What what might that one kind of instant be?
2: Um, the one that really brings uh, uh, <laughs> that I I it's the one that got away, I guess you could say for me Mm -hmm. is there's many that have gotten away, but this one kind of stands head and shoulders above the rest. It was, uh, in our 2012 season. So that would have been calm before the storm. There was a big giant brow tine buck that I was playing games with. And, uh, I mean, he had, uh, brow tines are kind of my thing. Mm. Like I love them. And he, and he had like, probably like a 14 inch one and a 12 inch one. So, um, big, clean five by five and this deer really liked it on the private. And one day I caught him on the public and with a doe in a pretty good situation and it's all on video. Mm -hmm. And he finally bedded down with her. It was perfect. I snuck up there. It was perfect. Other than there was some tall weeds, probably five foot tall weeds, Mm -hmm. but the DNR had the DNR had cut a swath through this weed field. So you'd have weeds, tall weeds for like a 20 yard swath. And then you'd have 20 yards of approximately of, of cut, just mm. like if you were to cut a hay field. Right. Right. So he, he was bedded in one of those with the dough. So it was perfect. I didn't have to make noise getting up there anything the only thing is once i got up there i had a little bit of a struggle trying to find him in those tall weeds
3: right yeah but
2: i finally picked I, i finally picked him out with the binocs and i was about 20 21 yards away from him and we already had good footage of him when he was on his feet and for some reason i felt like we need we should try to get a clip of him and i was like looking back i'm like that was so dumb there was not a chance we could have possibly to get a clip of this deer in those weeds, like I could barely make out, you know, an inch by inch piece of him. Right. You know what I mean? And I don't know if it was him or his doe, but I got, I got Andy who was running the camera up there and, uh, they, uh, one of them detected something through those weeds and they flushed out of their beds. So, um, that is one of the many blunders that I've had that uh, forever haunts me, I guess.
1: Right, right, and and, <laughs> so. and I'm assuming this guy was like a, a pretty nice uh, brow tie bucks, you know, f- foot in the bill for you.
2: Yeah, he was probably upper seventies to low eighties, five clean five by five. So yeah, he would have yeah. done. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he would have done <laughs>
1: understatement, right? yeah
2: yeah yeah right right that's
1: what i mean (laughs) yeah yeah so man yeah it's uh, i've never had to i've never had the luxury so being completely honest i've talked about this before on the podcast but the biggest deer i've ever seen was this last trip to iowa i jumped uh, uh, out of that crp field that i tried to hunt from the ground i jumped that was the first booner i'd ever seen on the hoof like first time ever Uh and it was just like you know, I'm from Pennsylvania, so you don't see those all the time. You know what I mean? So just seeing that, it was like yeah. blowing my mind. And then I, I ended up missing, you know, probably, a, I guess it was like a mid-140s 8.1, like the sixth day. And that was the biggest deer I'd yeah. ever drawn back on. And that was enough to, enough to piss me off and make me sick for a couple of days. But I couldn't imagine seeing like 170 clean 10 just decide to hop up and, and bound out of my life. I'd maybe throw my bow at it, yell at it, see if I could stop him, chase him down, something.
2: Yeah, in a panic, I threw an arrow, which I, I guess wasn't probably something I should have done, but uh, I, I guess, I, I think the doe actually pegged me, and at the instant, I knew right where he was, and I let fly, but my arrow didn't get there in time, right, so, right. Um, but uh,
3: yeah, so learn- and I've
2: had a lot of mistakes over the years on on big bucks playing these cat and mouse games, so that's yeah.
1: just one of many, but. Yeah, well, that means you've learned a lot in the process, right?
2: Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. So, <laughs> so, or hope so. Right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> that's the hope anyway. I
2: do. I do actually feel like I have uh, gotten sharper for a while. I wasn't sure if, if <laughs> you know, I, the first year we kind of did the all on the ground. We had a lot of mistakes and I just kind of like thought to myself, well, that's going to happen. You know, it's going to take a few seasons to really kind of uh, really kind of hone, hone in on this and, and really, you know, I had been doing it for years, but like full-time filming it like that. I mean, there's, there's just a lot more variables in there and, you know, it it just didn't feel like we were closing the failure rate as quick as what I would have liked. But I have felt really like this last season. um, I felt really good about a lot of the stocks and situations that I, I guess I was on and, and Chansey as well. uh, You know, he's, been hunting whitetails on the ground now for four seasons.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And I mean, that guy's an animal. I've still yet to film him, uh, kill a buck. You know, we did some hunting together a little bit the first year. Um, and we've done some since then, but he has went out there on his own and just, he lays the smack down on him. I mean, this year he got a, I don't know, upper seventies, uh, buck on public. He played cat and mouse with that deer
1: for three days. It's an awesome
2: story um but uh
1: yeah he's an animal <laughs> yeah man well i mean you guys are all all beasts man it's uh that's that's for sure dude it's i i've watched you guys in awe whenever you put these stocks on and even just locating locating these deer in the amount of time that you guys take to find find good deer you know what i mean like how diligent you are with that with that process and stuff like that but you know the one thing i want to want to ask was you know I've got some buddies that hunt on, on the ground and I've watched other folks hunt on the ground, whether it's on film or whatever the case might be, or, you know, a web TV show or whatever the, whatever that might be. But you guys are like, what I, what I appreciate about, you know, what you guys do is just like how aggressive you are in that aggressive style, you know, compared to others that I've kind of watched do something similar you know, where did that kind of aggressive approach come from? You know, how did it develop? You know, there's, like I said, there's other guys who will try to hunt from the ground and stuff like that, but you guys kind of have a style all unto yourselves and do it a little bit differently. Where did that come from?
2: I think a lot of that came from back in the early days of doing the videos. And this is a big reason why we went to hunt whitetails on the ground specifically is those first three seasons, we had hunts on the ground on every one of those videos but most of my time I still spent in a tree stand I'd say throughout the season, but it just seemed like we would get on more. We'd have more situations, more encounters, things like that, hunting on the ground. Um, and we, at that time, we only had one camera that we were filming everything with and we're trying to make enough, you know, produce enough content, you know, get enough animals, uh, throughout the season to make pretty, to, to, to produce one solid video, to keep the wheels going. And so we were kind of like, I don't want to say we were forced into it, but it was kind of like, for me, I loved hunting on the ground more so than the tree stand by far. And then along with it, the encounter rate I felt was always seemed to be higher. And it just, I, I, I liked all those aspects of it and it just made sense. It was like, okay, if we play, strictly a tree stand game with one camera rolling throughout the season. And, and at that time we weren't out there that much. I mean, we were more weekend warriors sort of, sort of speak, you know, we didn't have, you know, 60 days throughout the year to make it happen. So um, I just knew that we would need to change up our tactics, I guess, in order to get the kind of content that we're going to need on a regular basis right you know, yeah
1: now that makes sense and I mean I, I this upcoming year will be you know the first year maybe that I add hunting to my arsenal or hunting from the ground to my arsenal as like a more deployable you know strategy if you will I hunt a lot out of a out of a out of a saddle you know which allows me to be mobile and that sure. was like this year I was able to be super mobile because I was able to move that light and so I spent a lot of time boots on the ground scouting moving from place to place to place, and my encounter rate went way up. You know, so I can just kind of attest to like the idea like you guys are like the ultimate in mobility <laughs> and the more mobile you are, the more opportunities you have to have encounters with deer, but not just that, the type of deer that you want to have encounters with too. Um, which I think is important. Um but how Sure. Do- and, and Go ahead. Go just just like going back to kind of what you
2: said too is is what kind of brood that the other thing is is we don't do any pre-scouting and and you know, we don't have our eye on this deer or that deer. So I think by going into an area in a or you know a piece of public or whatever without having a bunch of prior knowledge we aren't I think when you have that prior knowledge you you play a different game a little bit you play yeah. more of a passive card mm-hmm. I think uh in a lot of those situations so I think that, that also contributes to why we kind of have a little bit more of a carefree all in approach if you if that kind of makes
1: sense no it totally it totally makes sense and i and i i I love that because this year again you know hunting around pa here near home it's like i i I do a plenty of scouting and i I do catch myself playing that more passive game which i don't like to do and i find myself doing it just subconsciously almost but whenever i do go out of state like whether it was the iowa trip this year or not i did come out early like in march and scouted but i ended up hunting the piece and where i ended up killing my deer was a piece of public that i had never stepped foot on i just i looked at some maps i ended up talking to a local and he was like hey you know i was like hey i'm thinking of this he was a really good dude and i kind of pointed to him in a map where i was thinking of looking he was like have you hunted it and i said no and he asked me if i'd scouted it and i said no he's like you know i've hunted this area for a long time he's like there's typically pretty good deer in that general area you know so i was like cool so i just kind of like booked it to that spot and just started hiking walking finding sign you know i know you guys do a lot of you know glassing and stuff like that but you know, I went in with no preconceived notion of what was there, what I was going to run into, and so I wasn't married to a place. I was just I was married to whatever whatever happened to be the hottest sign at the moment was what I was going to hunt, you know, um, and it worked out. you know, so I think there's a lot to be said of. I think it's almost freeing when you have less information at times. What do you think? Do you, do you kind of buy into that as well?:
2: the More free, you
3: say?
1: Yeah,
2: yeah, I agree a hundred percent.
1: Yeah. You, you you don't
2: feel like you have obligation to be there if if when I come in cold to a to an area or a spot, I treat that spot just as that. You know, I don't have any prior information. So, if I don't get a good feeling about it, there's a lot of pressure, I don't get visual on anything, I don't see much for sign, whatever it might be, it's really easy for me to okay, scrap that plate you know, go to the next playbook chapter or whatever, you know what I mean? And let's go check out this piece of public or that piece. You know, it's really easy for me to do that. I'm not locked down to any, you know, any particular piece, um, which I also have gotten very comfortable. So I don't like look at aerials and study them all and everything like that before I go hunting Mm -hmm. an area or a spot. And, and part of that is years ago, I just didn't have time to do all that. I mean. That might sound crazy, but with, with trying to work, produce the video, all of that, I just didn't have time to do that, going to shows in the spring. And then I just got to the point where I'm like, you know what? I have a, uh, a certain degree of advantage by going in cold though, too. I kind of realized that that was an accident, right? But I, I think the person going in cold isn't locked down or emotionally attached to sign and information that, happened in the past because mm-hmm. they've never been there. So it's really easy for them to come in, serve it. Okay. Nope. This isn't what I'm looking for. Move on, roll out to the next piece.
1: Right. It, it, it really makes you honest to the most recent intelligence you have that you're making decisions based on like real live in the moment data. Right. It's like, I see, Buck, or I see the sign I want or whatever the case is, um, which allows you just to kind of have no emotional attachment to, a specific deer even right it's like how many people do Correct. you know or i know i know plenty where it's like they get attached to a specific deer and it's like he hasn't shown his face in daylight or on public in three weeks but you're still hunting him right you know what i mean right. it's like right you know it's,
2: it's yeah it's easy to do that happened to chancy this last season and and uh it wasn't a bad thing he he uh he got on a giant deer 200 plus wow first day out in Kansas total fluke goes into a spot uh, forgot his rattling antlers on the trip walks into a gas station finds some old timer that's got some sheds that are i bet they're 15 year old sheds they're dry they're white they they're not what you want to be out there <laughs> rattling with but it was the best he had to work with and he just wanted to go into this spot and rattle and he goes in there and he rattles in this this giant and he the deer was so close to getting you know shot it, 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 it. He almost couldn't get closer. I mean, it just Jeez. it was just one of them deals. It'll unfold on video, but anyways, yeah. Chancey ended up kind of devoting himself the rest of for the most part, the rest of uh, you know, his Kansas bow hunt to trying to kill that deer and almost, I mean, he got visuals on him three more times. One day he he was on the other side of the public and from what we had seen with some other deer it appeared that he was locked down with a doe but there was a really good chance he was going to cross the road and get on public but he ended up not there was some vehicle traffic we don't know if they got nervous about, about that or what but he ended up not getting getting them but on a deer like that I I guess I I, I wouldn't wrong a guy for doing it you know but uh yeah. generally speaking we try to avoid that
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely not judging, not passing judgment on on that one. And that folks is another reason why you buy the Whitetail Adrenaline DVD coming out next year so you can watch that hunt.
2: Right? There you go. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um so I wanted to hey, ask
2: Yeah, I, wa- I wasn't in- I I wasn't intentionally plugging the next video, but it is going to be it is going to be a good
1: one. No, no. I'm going to I'm going to plug it cuz like I'm going to I'm going to check it out. <laughs> so it's uh <laughs> the uh so I wanted to ask, man, you know, As as aggressive as you guys are, like I've watched you guys. You know, it's whenever people say you guys are are aggressive, it's it's not that you guys are um, negligent necessarily in terms of like throwing caution to the wind. Like you're being calculated when you're making making the moves that you're making and stuff like that. So, how do you balance being as aggressive as you guys are, but at the same time being patient and you know taking the time to to make an approach on an animal that you have a visual on, so you don't kind of blow it before it starts.
2: Uh, you know, a lot of runs through, I like, like, okay. So for instance, if I spot a, you know, a big buck, you know, a, a shooter, will there's a lot that runs through my head in a short amount of time. Like there's, there's a lot of different situations that can happen. Uh, you know, obviously the first and foremost, is he on public? Okay. If he's on public, you know, is he, is he traveling? If he's traveling, you know, how much public do I have to work with? You know, do I think he's going to hold up before getting to private? You know, is he locked down with a doe? So there's a lot of different variables that come into play that are going to um, uh, make, you know, in in a matter of sometimes seconds and sometimes it takes a few minutes of evaluation to decide what the right play is, Mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, if, if, you know, if the, if the deer is cruising and I don't have much time and it looks like he's gonna get off a of public, I'm gonna be, you know, V lining to try to beat him there immediately, right. wherever that might be, if if that's possible. Um if if the deer's locked out you know, if he's with a doe, he might be running around chasing that doe a little bit, but it appears that he's staying with or not just checking her out. Then I'm probably gonna hold back a little bit and keep my visual maintain my visual. That's, that's really key. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really easy to, to falsely assume that they're going to be right here. Um, and, and so I really like to, if they're, if they're with a doe and I don't feel they're going to leave the public, I'm going to do my best to maintain my visual until I feel comfortable that they're going to, that they're betted and going to be bedded for a while. So what I mean by that is if I got a big buck with a doe and it's, shortly after sunup and they're smack dab and, you know, with public all around them. And I don't see any chance that they're probably, or very likely that they're going to leave that public. If they bed shortly after sunup, I'm probably going to sit there for the next hour and a half, two hours, and I'm going to wait. And till they get back on their feet, you know, sometimes they'll, usually they'll almost always get back up on their feet an hour and a half, You know, if they bed that quick in the morning, like a half hour after sunup, usually they're going to be back on their feet within an hour and a half, maybe sooner. Maybe it'll be two hours, but sometime before 10 o'clock, they'll probably get back on their feet. And if I think I can get in there quick enough and it's not going to take me much time to get in there, yeah, I might do that right away. But a lot of times I've found in recent years, I hold off and I wash them because sometimes they just get on their feet, stretch a little bit and rebed. And sometimes they'll move 300 yards and I don't want to be in a spot mm. where while I'm moving in, on, uh, they reposition and now I have no clue where they went. Right. So um, if that kind of makes sense. And obviously the wind, you know, I don't worry about the wind until I'm actually just de- until I've actually kind of like decided what I want to do or okay. or my pro- then it's like okay what's the wind and i check weather.com or accuweather or whatever and i check the we- the wind direction forecast for the rest of the day so i know approximately okay i've only got 2 hours of this wind direction or it's going to change like this i need to come in at this angle and usually i'm not coming in straight downwind usually i'm using like a crosswind you know in some cases i barely if if i feel like the wind is going to be very consistently blowing I'll get a pretty good read and I'll keep checking that as I'm moving in and if it stays pretty consistent I might just cheat that wind just barely I mean if they were three yards or five yards left or right they'd smell me I might cheat it that close I've done that before and I've also had a couple of situations where the wind switched for a split second and the prevailing wind didn't kick in quick enough to to keep my wind blowing And, and it cost me but I don't come in that tight unless there's a reason like, you know, like, okay, that's the only way I can do
1: this with trying to get it on video and keep us concealed or whatever. Right. Now that, that, makes, that makes sense. You hit on a bunch of stuff that I wanted to follow up on. The first one was, you know, maintaining your visual. Like, how do you guys how do you guys manage that? Cause I know you guys drive around a ton, you know, glass and, and so forth. And that's like some serious dedication. Cause there's sometimes I'm watching and you guys just, I'm like, I don't know that I could put that much time in a seat, like looking, you know what no. I mean? Like you guys are, you guys are diligent yeah. about it. Um, you know, yeah. but whenever
2: it's, it's a, med- that's a mental and in- that's a mental endurance game. That's yeah. actually more difficult than that's That's by far more difficult than going out into the woods. I'd much rather be out in the woods, but, we got to produce content each year and in those open type areas, yeah. you know, in the plains of Kansas is totally different, but even in some of the broken country, generally I try to be in a location. I mean, you can go in and you can sit in what's called an observatory location, but I've just found that, you know, I can cover more ground with a vehicle or a boat or something like that. And And there has been situations where I've had to actually walk into a piece that I've got a really good feeling about and i you know get to a spot where i can observe you know a quite a bit of acreage and, and try to get a visual that way and, and and that's worked as well um so uh you you're correcting that uh statement about like i don't know if i could spend that much time in a seat trust me yeah <laughs> you're you're if if you're thinking it you're absolutely right because sometimes it's 3 4 days of that Right. garbage before you finally get your opportunity. But three,
1: and, four, uh, three, four days of that are getting stuck in a snow drift or changing a flat tire or whatever hijinks you guys happen to get into.
2: Yeah. Well, to be honest with you, like that day where we got stuck in the snow, I mean, that was actually more fun than a lot of those days where we're putting all those miles on and not seeing anything. We actually had something to laugh about all day. <laughs>
1: right. Right. So. so the other thing I wanted to ask you was, you know, this is, well, I'll follow up with the crosswind thing, because that was one th- one of the things I was really kind of interested in, because I, I feel like I'll just give you the scenario that I had while I was in Iowa. And then I want you to kind of give me your perspective on how you approach deer in general, whenever you're going to put a sneak on. And so I got to the top of this CRP field field. I glassed. I didn't see him. Now, in hindsight, I probably would have switched how I was coming in because I didn't know that there was a buck that was bedded there. But the way the wind was, it was coming in my face. So he was bedded with the wind to his back in that little in that little draw looking up in my direction, right? And so he saw me way before he would have... It was windy, so he saw me way before he ever heard me, and he never smelled me, I know for sure. I'm curious if whenever you're... If you have your preference, would you rather put on a sneak coming from the deer's back and basically almost giving up the wind to them to put, so you can, you know, make sure that they're not able to use their nose and their eyes at the same time. Are you trying to always cut like one of their senses out to put on a sneak or, you know, what's your approach to that?
2: Uh, I definitely, i play the wind as best as I can. And, and partly because there's two of us out there, there's a guy filming and there's a guy hunting and you, we just don't do anything scent elimination wise mm-hmm. years ago, before I did the videos and I was solo hunted, I had a process. I could beat their nose pretty much every time. I mean, it was, uh, it, it was to the point where, you know, I would let like, like the biggest buck I shot uh, up to that point in my life in Oh five. I mean, it was 13 below. He had to go downwind. He was 15 yards downwind to me and walked, 120 yards out before I could get a shot with my loader. I let him walk down wind, Cause I had just let 28 bucks walk down wind over the Jeez. course of the whole gun and muzzle loader season. Right. And I, I had a system down that, that good. But now with how much we're moving around and there's two of us out there and everything, it, it would be just like a full time, a, a good solid part-time job, just trying to maintain our scent. So <laughs> I don't even deal okay. with it. I just play the wind. Um, a lot of times I like the crosswind stuff is, is what I, the that's the game that I like to play
3: mm-hmm.
2: more. So mm-hmm. um, I just not always, but oftentimes if a buck is, is bedded alone, he will be not always, but he, a lot of times he will be doing exactly what the deer, it sounds like in your situation was doing, which was using his nose to his back and, and where he couldn't smell, he was looking. Right. Um, Uh, you know, I've found that if they're bedded with a, if they're locked up with a doe, that could go right out the window. If they have a couple of other bucks there, generally, generally they're all kind of facing a different direction, or at least two of them are facing opposing directions. You know, maybe two of them are pointed this way, but the other one's pointed the other way. You know, they're kind of, they kind of got, got it guarded with their eyes pretty good. So, um, you know, in a situation like, what you're describing, I, you know, depending on how tall the CRP grass is and everything like that, if I had a good feeling something was maybe laying in there, I maybe would have tried to get, you know, you might've been already at the highest point. Maybe there was a tree that could give you a, an extra 10 feet of elevation. You could just climb up a couple of branches to, to be able to see in there better. Um, you know, that, and, and if there wasn't, you know, that very likely would have happened to me too, where I would have blown that deer out because, Without an actual visual, you know, I'm not going to give it a ton of time unless I have a really strong feeling or, like I said, had some sort of visual or or whatnot. Yeah. Um, so that's yeah. about the only thing. You know, looking back on it, if there was some something you could have climbed or a spot you could have gotten to to glass it better, you know that 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 would have been about the only thing different that maybe I would have done. And I can't even say that I would have. You know, you know how it is. Yeah. Hindsight's always twenty twenty. Yeah. A deer like that—that'll—that'll that'll probably uh,
1: run through your head several times over the next few years. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, because that, <laughs> that was definitely the biggest deer I'd ever seen. It was one of those things where I was at the peak of that that CRP field. Whenever you, you know, headed down into that draw, so I was I was skylit. You know, I had nothing between he and I except air and opportunity. The t- the grass wasn't too terribly tall, so it was just it was like you said. I had no clue that he was in there. I was actually on my way over to a timber line. Across that draw, up the other side of the CRP field to this timber line, it was where I was actually going to, and I was just so happened to be like, it was funny. I had watched a video like two days before, or right before I had left for my trip. That was almost like a similar style hunt from the ground. And when I got to the top of that CRP field, I was like, man, I was like, this looks like a great place for a buck to bed. I should probably stop and glass, you know. And sure enough, you know, I just never saw him when I when I glassed the place up. But so I'm curious, man. You know, you know, whenever. Whenever you guys are going out of state, you know, do you typically go back to the areas where you've hunted before, maybe that you had you know good encounters the previous years, or do you try to usually find fresh fresh pieces almost every year? And I know that you you know you don't get married to a spot; you go in with you know no previous scouting intel and stuff like that. But as far as like you know, if a place has been good to you in the past, do you typically go back, or do you typically try to find another green pasture?
2: Generally speaking, if a spot or in a, a little pocket or something has produced in the past uh, or, or the last time I was there, generally that's where I'll start, but I just treat it with a grain of salt. And a lot of times it's not that great the next year. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there's just a lot of different variables that can come into play. I mean, crop rotations, you know, other hunters could have found out about the spot or randomly just been hunting it throughout the year. There's a lot of different things that could happen so basically yes i usually my starting point is you if i've hunted that area before the starting point is generally where i've had success in the past and from there if i don't feel it i'm not getting visuals or or a visual or seeing anything that is telling me i need to keep spending some time here i move I move on and I check out new stuff and
3: right. I just kind of,
2: you know, and maybe the next year it's better. I just kind of right. treat it with a grain of salt. What happened in the past, I try to treat as a grain of salt. Right. If that makes sense. Right.
1: right. I mean, you're, you're, you're location, Treating. you're location agnostic. You're like, I don't give a, I don't care what has happened in the past. We'll give it a quick sachet to see if there's any, if it, it's holding true to the following year. But if I don't see something pretty quickly, I'm, I'm on to the next place.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, it's just like, 2016 season i killed a uh a good buck in a new piece of grass um it was a grassland piece and uh yeah i've i've checked it out quite a bit Chancey's checked it out quite a bit the last three seasons and we have had we've had two shooters on it but it was the same season so we've had two seasons where we haven't seen a shooter on right on it you know and and we have I, I mean, we've checked out that piece. I don't even want. I'd, I'd hate to even guess how many times we've,
3: <laughs> right,
2: we've checked it out and, and glassed it, and been there at first light and done a couple of rounds on it, and it's you know, I mean, right. it's one of those pieces that I've probably given it a little too much uh, qualification just because I've shot one there, and we have had two situations, but right. but that's not. Overly great, right? I guess.
1: Is there is there any particular weather that you that you prefer? Like, so one is there any particular weather when you're you know that you like to hunt in? You know that you especially see that you get the best movement or the best visuals or whatever. And then is there any particular weather that you know that you prefer to you know to hunt specifically as it relates to hunt on the ground?
2: Yes, uh, actually, uh, some people are going to think I'm crazy on this. Personally. I like the temperatures to be at an average temp for that time of the year or maybe even slightly warmer, hmm. just just a touch. Uh, I, I know that sounds crazy. I don't mind maybe a slight temperature drop either, but I don't like it to go too crazy of a cold front. As soon as it goes to a cold front, I'm waiting for the warm front on the back end. Hmm. And that's that's the truth. I, I, 100%, you know, I started talking a lot more heavily about it and sharing that with like, Jeremy did a quite a bit of hunting with me this year. He's done a lot of hunting throughout many States in his life. He thought I was full of crap. Like he laughed. I, I, I told him, I was like, I was like, think about how much the sun actually like affects what we do outside, outside of like hunting season. Mm-hmm. Think of how much it affects our life. Now, now we have a house to live in. You think it doesn't affect the deer. I was like, I was like, you just, you just watch, you're going to see more deer on sun Sundays. You know, like sunny days, you're going to see more deer. They're going to be, especially after a cold front like that, deer pretty much always, from what I've seen, after a cold front, you get a little warm spell with sunshine. They're in spots where they can catch sun. And, and I see it, you know, so much in the more open country where I can serve, you know, where I might see 50 deer that morning. And the morning before, it was 30 degrees colder, and I didn't hardly see anything. Mm-hmm. Okay? And, 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 and I've surveyed this a lot over the years. I just started, I think I kind of made a couple of jokes about it the last couple of years or the last couple of videos, maybe a little bit, but I really hit it harder. This, this last fall with with like calling it. I'd call it while we were out there hunting, like, yep. Cold front coming in, like, get ready. deer are going to shut down and mm-hmm. you are not going to see that much, you know? And, uh, like jeremy studied it for about a week and he's like i can't believe this and then he watched it the rest of the season and he's like yeah it's hands down you know and i was like i think deer in the woods do similar things and i think what happens is is i think hunters don't really generally like have their setups maybe mm-hmm.
3: uh
2: set up to cap you know like obviously if deer okay So if hunters are going out in the woods and they're like, oh, I don't really ever see anything on Sunday, uh, you know, on sunny days, well, maybe their tree stands aren't set up accordingly or, or whatnot, okay? Because I know that as soon as December hits and you can talk to all the guys that pick up sheds in shed antlers in the wintertime, those deer love the south side of ridges. Obviously, it's colder at that time of year, but... I think that the same applies, maybe not quite to the same degree, Uh, you know, in December. and You know, it maybe doesn't apply quite as much in September and October and November as it does in December and January. But I do definitely know that from my experience and what I've watched and surveyed that 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 that's 100 percent accurate Hmm. from everything that I've seen. The other thing that I've noticed is, okay, so if. So I like, what I like for a a, a day is I like, I actually like a a sunny day. Like I said, right around average temperatures or else a warm front on the back end of the cold front, because those deer are so predictable about where they're kind of going to be like going to bed. They're going to be bedding in those spots. So I can pretty much predict like, okay, this is, you know, wind directions coming out of this. If I'm hunting draw systems, it's like, okay, I want to be targeting draws that are, you know working. A certain direction that you know. A lot of times, the deer want to be bedded in draws that they can catch a little sun in. The wind's coming over the top, so obviously, if it's a west wind and I got a draw that in the bottom is on the east side and it's going up towards the west, and the draw kind of dissipates heading west, they can catch that wind coming over that west hill, mm-hmm. you know, and then catch sun as well. And and this applies. You know, I was hunting in an area this year where there was a, quite a few mule deer as well now i wasn't really targeting mule deer but i was watching how the mule deer operated utilizing the wind and the sun much and and it was pretty close if not identical to how the whitetails operate in as far as like okay they're going to be in these wind directions blowing like this they're going to be all you know going into draws that are you know this It's really hard to explain over the phone. I could show you on an aerial really quick, like, or the uh, contours really quick. Like, okay, all these types of draws are obviously going to work to their advantage with this west wind or whatever wind it might work. And then, you know, if the wind switched like this, especially if it was a cold air, then they're going to be on this side catching sun, and they still, this type of draw is going to work for them to catch sun and wind. So it was really easy. It got really easy especially this season when I started really like studying it a lot more, it got really easy for me to predict which draws not to waste my time for that day. Just looking Mm -hmm. at the wind direction and the temperatures and whether the sun was out or not. Um, And the other thing, the other thing that I've noticed, so I don't like a lot of wind generally right at sun up. Well, not ever at sun up. I don't like a lot of wind. I do like the winds to pick up to around 15, maybe pushing 20 mile an hour by like late morning, because I'm hoping I have a visual by that Mm. point. And by that point, then, you know, I have a plan orchestrated or I'm moving into this deer. Now I have wind, you know, uh, noise as cover for, for, for sound purposes. But I can tell you this, if there's a wind that's basically upper teens to 20 mile an hour, maybe even middle, like 15 mile an hour, if it's been blowing, You know, before sun up, like let's say it starts blowing heavy at 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m. or whatever, 4 a.m., 5 a.m. Those deer are almost all, almost all of them are bedded down. Hmm. I mean, I'd say 80 to 90 percent of the deer are bedded down. I I mean, I called that one all season long, too. And I'm not sitting here trying to say I called everything right or anything. But I started to actually, for quite a few years, I just was going to go hunting either way. So right. I didn't really like study it, right. but I kind of started to put some different things together, you know, and I was like, I'm going to monitor this a lot closer this year and see if, if this is what I, you know, what it feels like to me that I've evaluated over the years, I just haven't really studied it and like paid super close attention to it. So this season I did. And, you know, pretty much, you know, if it was going to be windy before the sun came up, like that, like that extreme wind I basically would make jokes to the other, like the guy, you know, whether it's Matt or whoever's filming, like we might as well sleep in until about an hour and a half, two hours after sunup, right. you know, cause, right. because, because, uh, they're, they're going to be bedded down. And, and generally they're they're Well, almost always generally, but almost always those deer, you'll see better deer activity, you know, like an hour and a half after, if it's windy already, when the sun pops up, those deer, are, like I said, 80, 90% of them. And, in my opinion, are bedded already. So you're going to see better movement an hour and a half plus after sunup anytime throughout the, the, the mid to late morning, then, then you will right at immediate sun up, cause they're bedded. Right. And I think partly why they're bet. I think partly why they're bedded is because, you know, so obviously once I basically evaluated this enough to be like, okay, this is, you know, this is what I've kind of noticed over the years, but, Now I'm like studying it, and it's like pretty much, it's like clockwork, you know? (laughs) So I was like, okay, why? You know? Well, in my opinion, why is because deer can't really see, in my opinion, hardly that much better than we can at night, you know? Right. And like their eyesight, their eyesight is not that great at night. And you know, it's not that great because you could have a deer in plain sight in a field where you can barely make it out. And if you walk through there quietly where they can't smell you, a lot of times they don't even realize you're there. Right. You know? I I mean, we I think anybody that's hunted very much can attest to situations like that. But in broad daylight there's not a chance right. you could ever do that. So obviously they can't see that great at night, right? So now with high winds, you take away you, at high winds throughout the night, you took away their sight or, or a good amount of their sight. And you've also taken away their hearing. And now all they have to go off is their nose, and I don't think they're really that confident about only having one sense to go off of. And so I think it just kind of like sketches them out a little bit, and at least once the sun comes up and they have their visual back, even if it's still windy, now they at least can see and smell. Maybe they can't hear worth a damn, but... Right. That at least they got two of their three senses back. They probably don't like consciously think about it. It's just kind of like ingrained in them. Right. You
1: know? Right. They're just, they're, they're in survival mode. Right. It's like whenever they, you know, even with their nose, whenever they have those high winds, I'm sure you're getting some swirls and stuff like that. Ah. So they're still not even getting a consistent wind to, to follow to make exactly. sure they keep themselves out, out of, out of danger as well. I like the, the whole draw thing with like the, um, the 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 temps and the sun and, and and stuff like that is really interesting to me. So for one, I'm bringing a map with me to Harrisburg whenever you're at the Harrisburg show in Pennsylvania, and I'm going to ask you to show me some of these draws <laughs> on a map so I know what they so I know what they look like. Um, and then the other thing I, th- I thought was interesting is like I wonder if it's I wonder if they prefer when you're able to kind of pick which draws they're going to like, you know, based on you know what's going on with the the temp and the wind and so forth. I wonder if they're getting a more consistent thermal. Because there's more sun, there's getting a more consistent thermal in a particular part of the draw, which is why there's, you know, bedding in that particular area. I mean, do you think there's anything to that? Just since the since the ground the, is going to get heated more consistently, they might get a more consistent thermal pool or a thermal pool in the morning?
2: You know, you bring up a good point there. That's, that's not anything that I have really looked into or studied so much. Um, you know, a thermal expert. If you will, somebody that's really studied thermals a lot um, might be able to expand on that and give
3: right.
2: you know a, a, a more accurate. But you know, it's quite possible.
3: Right. You
2: know, it, it's it's very possible that that you know that uh, you know now obviously they have the wind coming over the ridge you know into that draw system they're out of the wind and. And and then and then they can catch a little bit of the sun, you know. And then you know if they have the thermals working with them, you
1: You know, in some way, from the bottom, you know. Correct. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
2: But I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, for people listening that just heard me talk about sun and a little bit of a warm, you know, like a warm front after a cold front like that, I mean, some people might criticize me off the bat, but. I'm serious. Like go out this season and actually like pay attention to it and actually monitor it. But you have to be in situ you know, you have to be in locations and situations that are actually going to support, you know, like, like obviously I'm covering a lot of ground. And a lot of times I'm in areas where I can visually survey a quite a bit of landscape. So I can, it's really easy for me to, I guess, you know, spot right. these, you know, deer utilize and, and how they're utilizing the sun. And so it's really easy for me to do that. I, 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 like I said, I believe deer in fully wooded areas do that as well. And I think that I think even what I've learned in more of the open or partially open country, whether it be the plains, because the deer will do the same thing in the, in the plains. Cause even in the plains, you have little crevices, little ditches, and things of that nature. It do, it's not, doesn't have to be a big draw, but they will still utilize it a certain way. I played games of the big buck this last year and it wasn't that big of a ditch system, but we had six stocks in seven days on the same buck. Wow. And he uh, was the smartest deer I, I've ever hunted there. Most of those situations I could get to compound range and not longbow range. And mm-hmm. I had to back out because there was just no way to get closer. And finally we played our cards just right on a situation. Unfortunately, I blew the shot. That's probably my second most, um, (laughs) um, behind the one that story that I already told that just because that was the smartest, that, that is the smartest deer I've ever actually played games with. Like that deer was so smart. If the wind would switch, he would move 10 or 20 yards just to accommodate it within a half hour of it switching. It was crazy. So, um, I'd never seen a deer quite like that, but, um, anyways, I, I got a little bit carried away there, but I believe that that same what I've been studying in kind of this open country and semi-open country, I believe taking what I've learned from there to a more wooded type environment would allow me to narrow down a lot of the different, you know, like I'd actually be able to, I think, rid a quite a bit of acreage based off of the terrain, the, you know, whether the sun's out or not and the topography and, and the wind direction, I, I think I'd be able to, more efficiently look at a topo at that point and look at the land and be like, okay, this is, they're going to be bedded here and here. And I can pretty much eliminate most of this other thing. And I think that I'd find a lot of what I've learned in that open country and studied and and the partially open country. I could, I could do that in the wooded stuff because I think that the deer operate very similarly. I mean, and, and here's one thing, you know, you're in Pennsylvania, but I've had, this fall I put out a lot of feelers to people in different parts of the country. And I said, I just want you to kind of monitor this. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I've got a very accurate feedback from a handful of individuals that are good buck, big buck hunters. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I know what they've told me, which is pretty much what I just kind of said based off of their evaluations and what they've seen, uh, very much of what I'm seeing in the open country and how these deer utilize like the, you know, and and whatnot, it, it, it was like basically the same report right. coming back to me. So, um, that being said, uh, one thing I want, I, I just, one thing I may, I, I make, a, I make a couple I've made a couple of jokes about, and I think they'll probably be in the new video is I was like, how many times over the years, you know, it, I, it's almost like in our blood, like when the cold weather moves in, We get this in our blood, like, oh, it's going to be a good day. It's going to be a good day. Right. But how many times do we go out there, freeze our ass off, don't see hardly anything. And then we talk to our buddies and they most, for the most part, most of them didn't see much either. And then we all just figured we were sitting in the wrong spot. I just, I've talked to a lot of different hunters that have been through that scenario. And I'm not saying that you you can't kill a big buck in cold weather or, or whatnot, because I've definitely done that as well. I'm just saying, I'm not that excited about freezing my butt off and lowering my <laughs> uh, encounter rate and everything like that. That's all I'm saying. Like, right. I'm freezing cold and it's worse hunting for me. So, why would I like it? More? Right. You
3: know? Right, exactly. So like that,
2: and, 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 and to be fair, obviously, after post rut and those deer are run down and you get some snow and some cold, cold weather, obviously, those deer are in need. So, those those cold fronts definitely you know, can work to your advantage a lot more so than a warm front at that time of the year. So I want to definitely clarify on that. Um, But also along with that, when you get cold temperatures like that and snow cover, a lot of those deer are going towards like standing crop, like corn with, you know, it's easy food for them. It's got, you know, it gives them everything that they need, you know, that's best suited for them to survive. But I will say this, as soon as it warms up, during the cold, like, let's say it's December after, after rut. Um, as soon as it warms up, you know, generally speaking, yeah, not as many deer hit the fields. but if you sit back, if you can survey a, a woods where, you know, there's deer at, they browse a lot heavier from what I've
3: seen. Right. So
2: they're browsing, they're up on their feet, they're snacking, they're milling around all day. So they don't need to go out and hit those fields earlier. So if it's super cold and late season, and I'm on a solo hunt. If it's super cold with snow cover, yeah, I'm probably going to be targeting something closer to a food source. And that food source could be some public land that, you know, some crop that's on some public land. A lot of public lands don't have crop, but there might be some adjacent crop. So I'll be targeting that. If it warms up, if it's going to warm up, well, I'm going to assume that those deer are going to be doing a lot of browsing. Mm -hmm. in the woods and they're not going to get to that crop. So obviously I'm going to adjust accordingly.
1: Right. Yeah. No. that all all makes sense, man. It's a, it's, it's a lot to, it's a lot to take in, but I think as you were, as you were talking about those warmer days and and what your buddies were seeing and what you've seen, I think first, anyone who dismisses it is is silly because I mean, you spend an extreme amount of time in the woods in comparison to a lot of other people, you know what I mean? But just by the nature of what you do. So you have a lot of opportunity to observe, um, so I think that that is, you know, valid in, in in itself. I think this year, too, while I was in Iowa, it was the, the the best encounters I had. And even when I was in PA, like in pre-rut before I left for Iowa, the best encounters I had were actually on days that were average or above average in temperature, now that I'm thinking about it. And all the encounters, all the best encounters I had while I was in Iowa were, were all on warmer days. I was out there during that stretch where we had, like, you know, 15 degrees with like you know zero degree wind chill and whatever and it was like the first couple of days that i was there like it was above average temperatures and the hunting was great it got freakishly cold and it was like someone turned the deer activity off and then it warmed back up and i started seeing deer again you know which was yep
2: yep and i and and two of my two of my sorry i didn't mean to cut you off keep going you said
1: you you had another point you wanted to add on that no no that was that was it it was just it was crazy that it's, it's kind of mirroring what you're what you're saying
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's not something that, you know, I think it's for whatever reason, I I think years ago, cold fronts got so much hype just because all of a sudden it was like, it it was more of a late season thing on food source, especially when you have a quite a bit of snow cover where there's no, you know, the deer aren't going to be like browsing on the ground. And then I think people just kind of like took that as like gold throughout the rest of the season as well, like Mm -hmm. backed it up through November, October, September, you know, because I mean, trust me, I've been out in the open country of like North Dakota or Wyoming and it's 90 plus degrees. And I'm thinking it happened to me this year and it was like low 90s, mid 90 degrees. And I'm thinking there's no way that deer's going to bed down with it this hot, you know, in this open spot. He's going to go find a nice little spot to tuck into the shade. No. I I was dead wrong. And I've seen that happen before, but you know, in that moment I'm sweating my you know, butt off and I'm thinking there's you know, I've seen it before where they've done it like bed in a spot where it's like, Why would you do that in this heat? And they you know, whether it's to get away from bugs or whatever it might be, I'm not sure. But, you know, even at those hot temperatures, you know, it's it's not like, oh, they're he's gonna bed in the shade right there rather than the sun. I I do not definitely don't see a correlation there. Um What I was going to say to add to what you just said is one of my, uh, reports, uh, guys that I was, you know, brought, you know, my, what I was seeing this fall too was, you know, and I I wanted to see if his evaluations were were correlating with mine, uh, is he, he was located in like right on the line of Wisconsin, Minnesota, West central. And another contact was in Southern Wisconsin. So both of these contacts, you know, I was kind of in contact with, and it was like, they were giving me the report. Cause I was actually trying to get back to Wisconsin and do some hunting. So I kind of wanted to know what the deer were doing anyways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of a sudden they'd say like, okay, there's a cold front coming in. I'm like, yep, get ready. You know, I'd, I'd like send a text out. It wasn't a group text. This was individual, but I'd send a text out to both of us, you know, like get ready, it's, get ready for things to go pretty cold, pretty quick, you know? And it was like, you know, they kind of joke about it, you know, or whatever we made some jokes about it because it's still like, yeah, I'm saying it, but it's like, I still got to like get confirmation on this. I'm making jokes. Right. You know, it's like, you know i'm I'm predicting it, but it's I'm having fun with it. Like I could very well be wrong too right. at this point. but it it was like clockwork. They were like, yeah, it's completely shut down. And then it was like two days later, it started of warm up. Both of them were like, boom, they're back. They're back to, you know, seen three bucks this morning cruising around or whatever, you know, right. um, so, you know, that's, that's, you know, and, and they're hunted and they're hunting, both those individuals are hunting in more bigger woods. It's not big, big, like Northern Wisconsin woods, but bigger acreage woods where, you know, ridges run for miles. And obviously there's some crop fields that butt up to them and whatnot, but for the most part, it's that wooded type, you right. know, terrain.
1: Right. Yeah. So. But hey, man, I want to be sensitive to your time. I know we talked, you know, we're just a little over an hour here. So there's, yep. you know, I, we might need to do a part two, because I definitely wanted to get to a point to where I wanted to ask you about, you know, how you hunt differently during the different times of the season. But we might save that for a part two, because this next question sure. I'm going to ask you might be the most important question of the whole podcast that we've had so far. So how, how did you guys become such good mechanics? Good mechanic <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh,
2: I tell you, i you know growing up on that small farm, I guess that 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 goes back to the uh intro sort of a little bit to, of where I talked about being you know growing up on the small farm, I mean we just made stuff work, we didn't have a lot of money, you know, and it was like we were constantly repairing machinery and just you know figuring out ways to do that, so you know I mean. W- from the time I got my first car, you know, or first vehicle, you know, my dad kind of just got it ingrained in me. Like you need to fix your own stuff. You know, you don't take it to a repair shop. So I never took it to a repair shop. Um, other than if it was something major, like the tranny needs to be completely, you know, redone or whatever. But outside of that, I mean, all those other types of things like wheel bearings, U joints, you know, whatever master cylinder, all, you know, starters alternators whatever it might be I mean all that kind of stuff is is stuff that I just it probably goes back to that you know I just right you know kind of grew up in it and uh you just kind of evaluate I mean I I got some some good stories about this last fall a little bit with the minivan but I I don't want to get carried away because they'd they'd take a little while to (laughs) yeah to uh tell the story
1: but uh one of my favorite parts of watching this most the uh, most recent dvd was is is working on the car like that's i don't i don't know why but i just kind of get a kick out of it it's it's i guess it's me being able to laugh a little bit at your at you guys's expense but it was just kind of funny as i was watching it was like there was always that van man it's like i'm like you guys had to put some work into that thing to keep that thing rolling for as long as you did that's for sure
2: yeah, yeah. I mean there's been some work to be honest with you, that's cost me a lot less than my suburban to keep on the on the road. Uh I mean that van has seen a lot of gravel, pothole, gravel, crappy roads, and a fair amount of them at a high rate of speed right. over the course of <laughs> six seasons. So right. I mean if you looked under the undercarriage of the van, it would be like like Turbo Dan had never been in the minivan up until like two weeks ago when we actually went to try to give it away. Um, and, uh, I was like, he told me, he's like, I've never been in this. He was the one taking the video. Well, anyways, we needed to load it onto this trailer or whatnot. And, uh, he's like, I've never been here. I was like, really? And, and he had to drive it for a few miles. He gets out and he's like, he's like, man, he's like, I can't believe how well that thing just cruises down the gravel road just straight as an arrow. I was like, yeah, you should peek your head under there and look, you'll really be baffled. <laughs> so, anyway, I mean, the minivan's a beast. There's yeah. just no way around it. 20 bit. plus miles a gallon, handles right. the roads great, and uh,
3: yeah.
1: That's awesome, so. man. So, hey, dude, I'll, uh, I'll ask you one last question here. It's something I always like <laughs> to end with, um, you know, before I let you go. It's a, it's a really simple question, but they usually have, it's usually kind of a a nuanced answer, if you will, because there's a lot of different feelings about it. But I wanted to ask you, why does Jared Scheffler hunt?
2: Why do I hunt? I I mean, I'm, I'm, I guess you could say that I'm addicted to it, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I've always been, you know, I just, you know, obviously there's different people hunt for different reasons, you know? So, you know, I just grew up, I think I just, from a very young age, you know, like I kind of had said, you know, I'd sit around and I'd listen to the deer stories from these other hunters before I could hunt. And I always remember, you know, like the stories where they got away or the big one that they almost got, obviously the ones that they got were were cool too. But I think I've just always enjoyed like the chase and the, and the challenge of it. I, I mean, before I could hunt, I remember going on some of those Drives, you know we do small pushes and stuff so like when we would push a cornfield for instance i would be like cutting through the cornrows trying to find a deer and then once i popped my head in the row where i could see where the deer is i'd kind of backtrack backtrack loop around and just see how close i could get to the deer you know you, you know it's like obviously i can't you know and I, and I got very close one time almost touched the deer but didn't quite touch the deer um but i i, I mean so i just think i kind of like love like the 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 challenge and the pursuit of it and and the and the chase of it and i think that's also why i really love hunting on the ground too is because there's quite a bit of failure in that process too and there's quite a few things that you have to calculate and things have to go right in a short amount of time sometimes in those situations you know i mean especially when you're filming you got two guys there you're very exposed you you might not have time to range find. You might just have a split second to draw back. Is he at 30 or is he at 37? You know, it could make a difference or whatever. And that was in the compound era. You know, obviously I shoot long ago now, but for the guys that are shooting compound, you know, that situation happens quite a bit. Oh, oh uh, you know, fixed mechanicals might not be a good choice for me because I'm hunting on the ground and there might be a little bit of grass. And so a fixed blade is obviously going to not get sidetracked in that type of situation right. you know and and obviously there's a lot of other factors that come into play on the ground too you, you know you're processing like okay uh, wind and how i'm going to get me and this camera guy in there and use utilizing the train. so i think uh you know just all of that just it's very challenging and a lot of things got to go right to make it actually happen,
1: you know, and yeah. and come together. But, nice, man. So. That's that's a that's a perfectly good answer, man. But uh I appreciate you coming on, dude, and before I let you go, like if you wouldn't mind you I know I know you're going to be on uh at the Harrisburg show in Pennsylvania, but if you wouldn't mind uh let Correct. people know where they can find out more about you, when, you know, maybe the DVD is going to come out and what other shows you guys have going on this year where people can, you know, run into you guys.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um so our website's whitetailadrenaline.com. Um, we've got all 12 seasons that we've been filming on there. Um, they can watch people that haven't checked out the videos can watch different trailer videos to get an idea. I mean, the trailer videos only kind of showcase so much. It showcases generally a little bit more of the spot and stock action, but it doesn't showcase, you know, like the vehicle breakdowns, the funny stuff that (laughs) happens in the middle, you know, whatnot, but that's all there. Um, And then uh, as far as shows, obviously, like you mentioned, we're going to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. That's February 1st through the 9th. And then we'll be in Des Moines, Iowa for the Iowa Deer Classic. And then to Lansing, Michigan for the Deer and Turkey Expo. And then Ohio, Columbus, Ohio for the Deer and Turkey Expo. And then, uh, so all three of those are in the uh, month of March. And then Madison, Wisconsin, uh, first week of April and then Deerfest in, uh, West bend, Wisconsin. Yeah. West bend. I had a blank there for a second. That'll be like uh first weekend in August. So those are the shows that we have on schedule right now.
3: Um,
2: and then the new videos, traditionally we try to release the new videos at the deer Fest show. You know, they might come out. A, we're hoping to maybe potentially release them just a touch earlier this year, but, there's a lot of things. Yeah, production takes a while to go through yeah. that amount of unscripted content. So, yeah,
1: yeah. Awesome. Well, be sure to give these guys a follow too on Instagram. Your Instagram is pretty funny. I always enjoy following your stories and your and your posts. Be sure to give these guys a follow there. Jerry, brother, I appreciate you coming on, man. We'll definitely have to do a part number two because I got a couple more loaded questions for you to t- try okay. to help me up my game with, uh, with uh, the ground and pound, if you will. But uh, I'll see you in Harrisburg. I'll be sure to stop by and say hi when I'm there.
2: Okay. Yeah, that sounds great. Thanks for having me on, Clint. Appreciate it.
1: All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast. We'd be super appreciative if you'd be able to do those two things for us. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout-out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tether, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, Gumleaf USA Boots, and Day 6 Specialized Gear. And until next time, we'll see y'all.